Um, I'm going to talk about um, inerrancy and infallibility a bit. Is there anything else out of that stuff so far anybody wants to comment on or ask about? Um, okay. Uh, inspiration, the next heading on the sheet near the bottom, inspiration and narrative, uh, inerrancy, infallibility. When you think about inspiration, then the most natural um, context in which to think about it is to do with prophets. Prophets are people who are directly inspired by God, to whom God's word comes, who, who, who describe themselves as sharing words with us that they didn't generate, but that God gave to them as a result of the Holy Spirit's activity on them. But rather oddly, when people talk about inspiration, they, uh, and particularly when they go on to talk about uh, inspiration, infallibility, inerrancy, we are most concerned about the implications of that for narrative, for history. And it's a, it's a slightly odd move, because inspiration is most, most at home with regard to the prophets, but we think about it, particularly uh, in the context of debates over the past century or so, in connection with narrative. Uh, and it's um, fine to think about it with regard to narrative, though in my view what we need to do when we think about inspiration, word of God, uh, language, and apply it to narrative, we need to remember what inspiration, word of God, uh, language uh, was implies with regard to uh, the prophets. That is, when you think about Genesis being inspired, or Esther being inspired, or Mark being inspired, or Acts being inspired then their being inspired has the same implications uh, as it does when you think about Isaiah being inspired. Those two implications that I talked about. That is, uh, the word of God is certain to come about, uh, and the word of God has significance beyond its original context. So the way that the Bible, uh, the way that the narratives in the Bible talk is also something that declares what God will certainly accomplish. God will bring about the fulfillment of his purpose in the way that he does in that narrative. And also that the narratives have got significance beyond their original context. That's why the narratives are able to instruct us for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, just as much as the prophets can. The point about the idea of inspiration ought to be the same with regard to narrative as it is with regard to the prophets. But that's not how it's been, particularly for the last hundred years, um, and uh, so that's what I need to talk about a bit. Uh, because of the link that's been uh, made between uh, inspira the inspiration of Scripture and the uh, accuracy of Scripture, that the idea of the Scriptures being inspired um, got turned into a guarantee of their, being, of their historical truth, uh, of their infallibility, of their inerrancy. Um, now, uh, until, you, until you got to the end of the 19th century, that wasn't an issue. Uh, the, the whole question about the fallibility of Scripture in that sense, whether or not Scripture was accurate enough, uh, is one that didn't come to be a big issue uh, until the 19th century, given the development of um, uh, the approaches of biblical criticism. When critical study of scripture raised questions about scripture's historical origins and, histor and its historical accuracy. Uh, and so the idea of inspiration was stretched so that it could suggest a theological response to questions that were raised uh, by critical study. Uh, and the person who was key to this uh, was uh, Benjamin Warfield, 
who was a professor uh, of New Testament at Princeton uh, in the 19th century, um, where uh, Warfield said that the significance of inspiration lies in the make in the in making the biblical writers also uh, the, sorry making the biblical writers words also the words of God, and therefore perfectly infallible, he said. Um, now, some of you may know that back in the 80s, I guess, 70s, 80s, there was a controversy over whether you used the word infallible or the word inerrant. Uh, and the word inerrant came to be a kind of stronger word than the word infallible. Uh, but in the 19th century, they didn't make that difference. So when Warfield talks about infallible, he's using the word in the sense that it would now have, um, that would now attach to the word inerrant. Warfield's point then was that because the scriptures were inspired, they were therefore perfectly infallible. Um, he was uh, following up and giving some more, or expressing in another way, uh, the teaching of the uh, theologian at Princeton, Charles Hodge, who said that the whole end and office of inspiration is to preserve the sacred writings from error in teaching. The whole end and office of inspiration, the reason why you think about inspiration, is to preserve the sacred writings from error in teaching. Um, those two statements of Warfield's uh, and Hodge's seem to me to be quite wrong. Um, the, the point about inspiration was not... Scripture's own testimony, as I've been trying to suggest it to you, is not that the point about inspiration is to preserve the Bible from error of any kind. The point about inspiration is, all to, is, is to guarantee that God's word will be fulfilled um, and to uh, guarantee that God's word will have significance beyond its original context. What, whereas Warfield saw himself um, as simply restating traditional Christian doctrine, what he was actually doing, as um, uh, doctrine is always doing, and quite rightly, is trying to deal with a new question that hadn't arisen before, and he's using old resources to, to answer a new question. The question whether the Bible was historically uh, accurate, historically factual, uh, was, was one uh, that, that hadn't been an issue until the rise of biblical criticism. Uh, and, and so uh, it, was, it was right that these guys were seeking to, uh, to handle uh, that issue. Uh, but I think that they were involved in a stretching of the meaning of inspiration which wasn't justified, and which also uh, puts you off from the, the point about inspiration, which is actually that very, those, those very important ones I was talking about just now, in terms of inspiration, guaranteeing that God's word will be fulfilled, and meaning that God's word has got implications beyond its original context. Um, the, uh, the claim that the Bible is infallible in every detail uh, has... Um, been defended uh, by lots of people over the last hundred years, um, but it, it involves, at lots of points, um, uh, unrealistic strategies in order to deal with what seem to be not, not always the, uh, the historical, factual, all things in the right order, truth of Scripture. Uh, a classic example... Um, was uh, the work of, uh, of Harold Linsell, who wrote a book called The Battle for the Bible, um, which was actually an attack on Fuller uh, in the 70s or 80s, when Fuller was itself trying to think through these issues. 
And in this, uh, the battle for the Bible, as it were, is the battle at Fuller that, was, that, was, that involved Fuller. And Nuncell tries to deal with some of these problems about the accuracy uh, of, the, um, uh, of the scriptures. Uh, one of them he deals with is um, the three denials of Peter, uh, of Jesus by Peter, uh, just before Jesus' crucifixion. The problem there being that uh, when Peter says something and when the girl and the other, the other people um, accuse him of being a Galilean and of being one of Jesus' disciples, um, they come in a slightly different order in all the Gospels. Um, and so the question is, how, how can the scripture be inerrant if it doesn't, if, if there are these, uh, some, one of these Gospels must be wrong? Uh, and LaSalle's um, way of solving that is to say, it's no problem at all. Because if you reckon that Jesus actually was denied by Peter six times, then you can get all each of the Gospels three denials in the right order within those six. Right? Uh, of course, but the problem is, that means that all the, all the Gospels are wrong in telling you that Peter denied Jesus three times. Because it turns out he denied Jesus six times. And so it looks as if it's uh, saving the inerrancy of Scripture, the infallibility of Scripture, but actually it's not doing so. It's producing uh, solutions which are so implausible there must be something wrong with the way of setting up the question. Um, the problem uh, lies, uh, as I put on the sheet, with, uh, uh, I put on the sheet as uh, the trouble with the therefore. Uh, that there was no warrant uh, for Warfield's moving from Scripture is inspired to Scripture is inerrant uh, or infallible. It's, uh, he was drawing an inference from the fact of Scripture's being inspired, which isn't an inference that Scripture itself draws, uh, and which might be right, but might not. But you have to be careful with inferences. Uh, Jesus' um, death was uh, the paying of a ransom for our freedom. Well, Origen, the early church father, asked, okay, who did Jesus pay the ransom to? Answer, Origen says, Jesus paid the ransom to the devil. I don't think much of that theory. Systematic theologians since haven't thought much of that theory. It's logical. Um, double predestination. You know about double predestination? Some people do, some people don't. It's the same as everything, whatever I say. Some people know it, some people don't. Um, God predestined people to salvation, says Calvin's doctrine, uh, says, the, says, uh, says the New Testament. Therefore, God predestined other people to damnation. Says Calvinist doctrine. I don't think Calvin ever said that, but, but it is a, a Calvinist, some Calvinists. Always the people who've got the ists on the end tend to be um, dodgy compared, is that, an, yeah, dodgy compared with the original, you know. So Calvin's okay, but Calvinists be a bit careful. If God predestined some people to salvation, God predestined other people to damnation. That's logical. But then it's significant that Scripture doesn't say that. As Scripture doesn't say, that Christ paid the ransom to the devil, and Scripture doesn't say that some people are predestined to, to damnation, and Scripture doesn't say, inspired, therefore, inerrant, infallible. You have to be careful with therefores, partly because um, truth about God is complicated. Um, it's mysterious. And so if you start trying to be too rationalist and logical about it, you, may get in, you do get into trouble. Warfield was trying to deal with a real um, issue 
that is, uh, uh, the, the importance of Scripture being basically factual. Uh, but it, he went the wrong way about it in trying to link it up with inspiration. He didn't have a warrant, he didn't have a basis uh, for saying inspired, therefore infallible, inerrant. Um, he led people on wild goose chases with regard to proving how every detail must be accurate. And he would have been better off, uh, in my opinion, um, trusting God about the matter, if you like, uh, and saying, well, God surely, God's providence surely, uh, wouldn't have bothered to give us the Bible if the Bible hadn't been reasonably accurate. We don't need an infallible Bible. We don't, we don't, in order for, the, in order for the, the gospel, as it were, to be safe, uh, we need uh, an assurance that the Bible is basically accurate in the things that it tells us about the, the story of Israel and the story of Jesus. Uh, but we don't need it to be inerrant. And, there's no, and there isn't actually a theological basis uh, for reckoning that's, that's, that it's inerrant once you question Warfield's therefore. But it's okay because we know that God loves us. We know that God was involved in that story of Jesus. Um, and we know that, that God, who went as far as giving his son to die for us, wouldn't have left the job half undone by not giving us um, a, uh, an account of that that could be relied on. So there's neither need nor warrant for believing that inspired therefore means inf inerrant. Uh, and it's more useful to go back to the basic meaning uh, of inspiration. When you're asking what does inspiration imply, then keep going back to uh, the fact that the Bible is the inspired word of God means that it has things to say to us because of the involvement of the Holy Spirit in it and that God's word will definitely find fulfilment. Uh, anybody want to attack me about that? Or even defend me, or even politely ask questions about it? Mm -hmm. Can you define probability and inerrancy? Sorry, because it seems to me that for you, inerrancy is a stronger term, but the way I've heard it before, infallibility is the stronger term of the two, so I'm a bit confused with your whole discussion. Oh, oh I, think, I think inerrancy is always the stronger term. Okay. I've never heard anybody suggest that infallibility... Um, I, I, is the stronger term. Uh, the, distinct, the way that uh, I'm aware of them being used in the last sort of 30 years or so um, is that people who will talk about scriptures and infallibilities, I think, as, I think, as I think Fuller's Basis of Faith does, um, are, uh, don't want to claim that, it, that scriptures are factually inerrant, uh, but do want to reckon that they are theologically reliable, that there are no truths about God Sorry, this sentence doesn't make sense. There are no truths about God there that aren't truths about God. That is, there are no claims in Scripture um, uh, of a theological kind uh, that are unreliable. So it, it doesn't need to, the assumption there is, it doesn't need to be factually inerrant in order to be theologically infallible. That's, that's my understanding of the way that people usually make the dis distinction between them. Um, yeah. Um, well, a few uh, words at the bottom of page 47 uh, about uh, understanding the relationship between the human word uh, and Holy Scripture. That is, how can, how, can, how can something be a human word but also be a divine word? Here are some ways of thinking about it. Uh, I guess the most common one, uh, is the, mo the favourite one, is to think in terms of the Incarnation. That is, Jesus is both fully human 
and fully divine. Scripture is similarly both fully human and fully divine. Um, that's one way to think about it. Uh, and you can then see ways in which people's mistaken doctrines of Scripture can be comparable to mistaken doctrines of, um, of Christ. That is, there is docetism, which is, Jesus was really God, and he was only pretending to be a human being, taking the, the, the divine side to Christ um, seriously to the exclusion of taking the human side of, of Christ seriously. And you can see how it's possible to do well with Scripture, to stress so much that it's the word of God that you don't take seriously it's being a human word. But conversely, it's possible to say, well, Jesus is really a very good man uh, who was almost like God in the way that he lived. More of an, a an Aryan um, understanding of Christ. And likewise with Scripture, um, other sorts of people would say, it's a human word. Okay, it's maybe capable of speaking God's word to us, but it's essentially a human word. The analogy uh, with the person of Christ as both fully human and fully divine is that scripture really is both of those. So we take it with total seriousness as God's word, every word, every chapter and so on. But also, uh, we, and even, even if it's not historically, it doesn't mean it's not God's word because God can speak through parable as well as through history. It's all God's word, but it's also all human word. Or you can think about it in, um, as... Uh, by analogy with the Spirit's activity in the church. Um, sometimes, uh, when, I, when I preach a sermon, um, it might be the case sometimes that all the things that I say are true and come from God and are illuminating and helpful. They're all my words, but God might have been involved uh, in my preparing of them and my saying of them. Uh, when, when you... Uh, when you wash somebody's feet, that's a, a human act, but it's also a Christ-like, a Christ, a divine act. There can be things that the Spirit does in the church which are human but also divine. Or you can think of creative inspiration. Um, you know how sometimes um, people who uh, write songs will say, well, it wasn't as if I wrote it, it kind of came to me. Handel wrote the whole Messiah in a weekend or something, didn't he, like that? Um, but even, as it were, ordinary creative inspiration, something that doesn't sort of extraordinary like that, may produce something which seems uh, bigger, more significant than merely, than merely the production of the human being. Some way in which they are kind of channeling something supernatural. Maybe that helps us to understand something of the nature of inspiration. Maybe the sacraments do. Um, depends a bit on your on your kind of theology of the sacraments, but but at least uh, for some people, at least it's the case that that when at Holy Communion you are given uh, wine and bread and you receive them, there's a real giving of God Himself to us and a, re a real receiving of God by the person who receives. Not not necessarily because the this this bit of bread and this sip of wine have been changed into something else, but that but that God really works through that process. The, the God really is giving through that, and I really am receiving. Um, or, finally, an analogy with God's acts in history. Um, there's that great description um, in Acts uh, of uh, the, the nature of what went on in Jesus' uh, death and resurrection. 
Um, Acts chapter 2, verse 22. You, the Israelites, listen to what I have to say. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with deeds of power, wonders and signs that God did through him among you, as you yourselves know. This man, handed over to you according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of those outside the law. The, the death of Christ was both a totally human act and an act that expressed God's purpose. That was, it was God's act too. Handed over to you according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of those outside the law. The death of Christ was God's great act, but also humanity's terrible act. It can be the two at the same time. Uh, and so again, maybe that provides an analogy with the way in which scripture can be both a divine product uh, and a human product. Okay? Go away. Come back soon. 